welcome to Theology Gals, and this is episode three on Catechism and Confession, and Theology Gals is a podcast for women by women, and um, we're part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, where there are some other great podcasts. I want to give a quick shout out to my friends over at Semper Reformanda Radio, kind of a a mouthful, but... um, Last week, they did a great episode with um, a guy I'm friends with on Facebook, Gary Edwards. Highly recommend that episode. I've heard they're having Gary on again next week, and they've had some they've had some good episodes, especially regarding Roman Catholicism. I've not listened to the most recent one, but if you're maybe um, have Catholic family or friends or that sort of thing, there may be some helpful episodes for you there. So I'm I'm Colleen Sharp, and I'm here with my co-host, Ashley Glassick. Ashley, how are you doing today? Doing well. I also want to give a quick shout-out to Castle Pines that uh, yes. does their music, uh, that wonderful opening music that you hear. That is Castle Pines. Look them up on Spotify or SoundCloud. Um, we are big fans right. of them. And we may have to, you know, play some more of their music at some point or for the end or something like that, because they they are. And they're from our hometown, Corona, California, which we're excited about. So, Ashley, what's going on this week? Anything exciting? Well, I'm a little congested. You might hear it in my voice. Um, So not super excited about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. I am excited that today at work I got to go watch a second grade classroom. I don't even think I've shared this on here yet, but I teach middle school, so I teach seventh and eighth graders. And I I love them. You know, somebody's somebody's gotta love seventh and eighth graders. But today um we got to go and observe second graders doing math and it was the cutest thing. Like I I don't know how they do it. I don't know how elementary school teachers do it, but it was really cute to watch. How about you? What's going on this week? Yeah, I, w- I was actually, I did pick up my son. He goes to a kind of a special charter school and I went to go pick him up And this. I, I think it was a first grader came in and I was just thinking, she's just so cute. Like how come <laughs> everyone's not stopping and looking how cute she is? No, they see oh. her. They see these kids all day. But And my mom taught junior high. So I know that's a special mm-hmm. calling. Whenever I tell people I teach middle school, they're like, oh my gosh, middle school. And then I say, oh, and I actually teach math. They're like, what? Like they're just like the combination of middle school and math people just think is, is crazy, but I love it. (laughs) Well, good. I'm, I'm glad that you do love it. Yeah. Not, not anything too exciting here. My husband and I went away um, for night, which is always always fun. We just went to downtown Denver, but we try to do that at least twice a year. Usually, for, well, that's kind of our six month anniversary, and then, um, and we, we had fun. We actually went to the Capitol, which we've we've never done before, living here nineteen and a half years, and can't remember what else we did. We're actually taking our kids down to the. Denver Art Museum this weekend, they have a Star Wars exhibit with all the costumes oh from Star Wars. So that's, I guess that's exciting. Are you guys Star Wars people? Like, I, Not me specifically, but your my husband oh, okay. and kids are, yes. My husband would love that. He's a big Star Wars fan. Well, you know, I am too, but I am too, but um, 
not as big as he is. Yeah, I, well, I'm a little older than you. I actually remember seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater when it came out. So I did grow up with them. Everyone's now trying to calculate. They're Googling what year did Return of the Jedi come out and how well. I'm jealous because I grew up with the um, prequels, you know, Uh, episode one, two, and three that came out. Uh, So you got, I mean, I got the short end of the stick there (laughs) growing up with the prequels, but um, yeah, the newest ones have been good. The new, like the most, did you see the most recent one that came out? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really embarrassed to say I did not accompany my family on that excursion. Oh. <laughs> so I've not yet seen the new yep. ones, but my kids loved them. They, what they said was, I think they liked the first one better. That's what they said, but they liked them both. Yeah. Well, um, since my husband loves them so much, we are there. Everyone that comes out, we are there. If not opening night the next day. Because uh, he's really like yeah. See, I have kids, so they just kind of take my place on some of these things. It, and <laughs> and honestly, as a mom, and you know, I'm, I don't know how much I've talked about my kids on here, but I have four sons that are 14, 16, 18, and twenty. And so, I love having time alone at home where it's quiet and is it's a rare, rare thing. So I. I take advantage of opportunities, you know, so sometimes weighing, do I go out with them, which I do love going out and spending time with my family, but sometimes I opt to have a quiet few hours at home. So, um, well, I, I can't think of too much else exciting, exciting this week. You know, we've had some interesting discussions in the group. We've actually had several people ask what is reformed and today's episode will be one section of that, but we are actually going to discuss that on episode four. And then um, a lot of baptism questions recently. We've had some pretty um, intense baptism debates. Well, I wouldn't say too bad. Um, And I'm I'm trying to think if there was anything else real exciting. I guess we had the discussion where people tried to guess your favorite band of all time, but people are going to have to listen to the end of the episode to find that out. Yeah. Yeah. There was some good guesses. I think people assume because of my age, it was something that it is not. So I will reveal that at the end of the episode. Okay. So today we're going to talk about something that has come up in the group a few times, not a lot, but a few times and, and really, you know, catechism and confession And we're going to talk a little bit about what catechisms and confessions, and we're going to talk about um, a little bit of the history, but primarily we're going to focus on the why. And Ashley, I know you have a story about kind of the first time that you heard about catechism and confession among Reformed people. Yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah, I do. Um, So, I mean, just so our listeners know, the idea of a confession is a pretty new idea to me within the last few years. I remember probably three or four years ago, I had a friend that was moving 
And she said to another friend of ours and, and myself, she said, yeah, we're looking for a new church. Um, it's really important to my husband when we move. It's really important that we find a church that's confessional. And I had never heard someone use that word before um, to describe a church. And so I turned to my other friend and I said, what does that mean? Like, what's, what, what is a confessional church? I don't, I don't get it. And she was like, I don't know. Like both of us just kind of like shrugged our shoulders. And ironically, both me and the friend who shrugged our shoulders are both now part of confessional churches. But, um, so I, I heard that and she said, you know, it's really important we go to a confessional church. And I was like, all right, whatever. I don't know what that means. But when I started going to, um, the Presbyterian church I started attending uh, a couple years ago and they started talking about the Westminster confession. I was like, Oh, okay. This, this must mean what, you know, what the word confessional means. And, you know, and since, since I've learned a ton, you know, about the confession and um, our church goes through, through it sometimes in Sunday school or Bible study, things like that. Um, But I, I just want, those listening to know if you've never heard someone say, you know, what, like a confessional church or you hear people talking about confessions. Um, I was pretty new to that too, only a, I'd say two years ago, three years ago. So um, what, Colleen, what's, what's your experience? Well, that the first time I'm pretty sure, you know, I was, I was kind of a new Calvinist learning from theology, listening to the white horse in, and I had a few moments that first couple months of listening to the White Horse Inn where they said things, and I thought, that is Catholic. The only time I had ever heard the term catechism, I wasn't even completely sure on confession, but catechism was what my Catholic neighbors went to when they were in elementary school. You know, on Wednesday nights, they had to go to catechism. And it was, I wasn't, you know, I'm not even sure I'd really even thought through what a catechism was, what a confession was, but it did seem bizarre to me. And it was one of those moments. I had a couple moments of what have I gotten myself into moments. And that was one of them. Like, okay, these guys are crazy. I'm pretty sure. And I think we've had a couple of women in our group that maybe feel that way. And I understand when you've grown up with things very different and you're only experience with catechism or confession is is something that's contrary to what you believe then that is going to take you back yeah and even when when I first you know I started attending this church and I noticed in Sunday school we were working through the confession around like chapter 27 I remember we spent like two months going through chapter 27 of the Westminster confession that's what that's what my church uses And I remember being kind of bothered by it. Like, you know, like you said, like it wasn't my background. I, I grew up hearing about, you know, Catholic catechisms like you. And the thought of going through a confession seemed like this is extra biblical. Like, shouldn't we just be going through the Bible? Like it really kind of, it for several months kind of bothered me. I mean, obviously we stayed and, my mind was changed on that, but um, that was kind of one of my first reactions to the idea of a confession. Right. And I think that's because that's what we grew up with, Ashley, 
in in my preparing for this episode, well, let me back up. I I, I mean, I was already confessional and, and whatnot, but um, several years ago, our church book group read the book by D.G. Hart, which I strongly recommend. If you want to understand the why of confessional in American Protestantism, this is the book. Um, it's called The Lost Soul of American Protestantism. In fact, I'm going to be reading it again, going through it again with a friend pretty soon. But that book was very, very eye-opening because it really shows what happens when the church as a whole divorces itself from the confessions. And he splits American Christianity into pietists and confessionalists, which some people will take issue with and have with him. And when I was researching, I found that, um, let me see if I can find this from, it's actually from the white horse in blog. It did not have an author on it. I mean, it may be Michael Horton. I'm not hundred percent sure I can actually find out, but I wanted to read this quote and then we're going to talk about what it is and the why, but it has to do specifically with that debate. Um, I don't know if it was from Hart's book or where the debate came from, but I guess there was a debate on kind of the difference between pietists and confessionalists. So this quote, the Westminster Confession and Catechisms were drafted by Puritans. From these documents, one cannot detect any internal conflict between a high view of the church's ministry, word, sacrament, and discipline, and a clear delineation of the need for personal conversion and piety. So let me just stop right there. Um, I think one of the one of the issues, and I think this was the case in the debate, is they were kind of pitting Christian experience against confessionalism or Reformed Christianity or other sorts of confessional Christianity as if that there's one or the other. Because when there was a, if you, in American Christianity, when there was a divorce from the confessions and catechisms, it was for experience. It was for what you were talking about, Ashley. We need to just read, we just need to read the Bible and just believe that. We don't need the confessions, you know, that sort of idea. Soul scriptura, right? That's right. That's the claim. Well, and that's actually exactly what I was going to get to. And I'm going to read a couple things that we're going to talk about just because other people have said it better than I. But this is from Michael Horton's book, The Christian Faith. He says, The Latin slogan, sola scriptura, means by scripture alone, not scripture alone. Solo scriptura, for example, which is solo scriptura is scripture alone. But but sola scriptura is by scripture alone. Right. It says, for example, both Lutheran and Reformed churches regard the ecumenical creeds, along with their own confessions and catechisms, as authoritative and binding sum- summaries of Christianity to which they are all subordinate. And then one more thing, um, and I'm, I'm going to have all of this in this week's resource sheet, but... Um, Great episode of the podcast, Regular Reform Guys, that had Todd Pruitt on talking about this very thing. And he said, we are not saying scripture is the only source of authority. We are saying it is the supreme source of authority. 
we still benefit from church history, history and tradition. And he was actually talking the difference between a biblicist, which would be contrary to the confession, confessionalist in that podcast, which I strongly recommend listening to. But let's let's talk about what it is, what a confession is, and then talk about why we think they are necessary, why we think that they are good. And I just wrote down a couple, um, a couple things. I'm, R. Scott Clark has a lot of good things to say, and I would recommend his book, Recovering the Reformed Confessions. Well, actually, um, saw this in an article by R. Scott Clark about something else. And he was talking about the confessions and he said, God's word as confessed. So this is what the confessions are. God's word as confessed. And in parentheses, theology, piety, and practice by the reformed churches. That's the simple definition. Yeah, of what, I like that though. It's short. It's, it's like a very short definition. It's, it's kind of a summary. This is what, this is what God's word says. This is what's been revealed to us. Um, right. This is what we confess about his word. So like why to someone who, to someone who's not used to the idea of a confession, like why would you say this is, this is important. This is, this is helpful, or this is maybe something you should look for in a church that they hold to a confession. Right. And, you know, I, I've been in different churches throughout my lifetime. And before I was reformed, I was never in a church that did not have a statement of faith. Every church okay, I so, was in had a statement. Yeah, of faith. that's, that's a good point is people will say, I don't need a confession. Or I've heard people say no creed, but Christ. Right. So we don't, we don't need a confession to say what we believe, but that in itself, like my pastor, he's made that statement. That in itself is a confession. You're, you are making some sort of confessional statement as to this is what we believe. So if you're rejecting the idea of needing or desiring a confession, you're forgetting that most likely, I mean, 99% of churches have some sort of confession, right? I mean, something saying this is what we believe. So why... So if, okay, then let me ask the question differently. If, if most churches have some sort of um, statement of faith or whatever on mission state, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, um, why is it good to hold to something like the Westminster Confession or the Three Forms of Unity or um, London Baptist? Like why, why is holding to that? Like why would that be a good thing if I'm looking for a church? Right, right. And I think, um, well, and Scott Clark also says, Regarding the confessions, these are the ecclesiastical summaries of the Christian faith and the Reformed tradition. In these documents, the churches express their official interpretation of God's word on those things they considered most essential. And that's what it is. Even when a church has, you know, you and I both grew up in a church that has, you know, basically a statement of faith. And this is something, this is a statement of faith and confession that's been a, around for a long time. But just like those, it is a summary of those things that we think are most important. And one thing we should mention, Ashley, and, you know, we've both seen this in the confession and catechism is there's always proof text. It's mm-hmm. not just something thrown out there, you know, what is the 
chief end of man, for instance, first question of the Westminster Catechism, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's not just somebody's guess of what the chief end of man is. That answer is based in scripture. The catechisms and confessions are based in scripture. They are the guide for the catechisms and confessions. What convinced you, Ashley, that maybe these catechisms and confessions are a good thing? Um, one thing that helped, because so the OPC holds to the Westminster Confession, um, um, for those that, that wouldn't have known that. But what one thing that, that helped was hearing kind of the history of the confessions. And um, I mean, what we just said was helpful. Like every church has some sort of confession. So um, then, you know, understanding the history of the Westminster Confession and seeing, I mean, I remember, I remember talking uh, to my pastor uh, about this and him explaining just, well, these men spent years and years and years studying God's word. And then they came together and wrote this, you know, this summary. And, you know, he made it clear, this is not, of course, we don't see the confession as an infallible document. But, I mean, as someone who's been a Christian, you know, five or six years, I've never been even seminary trained, or, you know, I I don't even know how well, like, my own interpretation of things that I just read sitting by myself is, but these men spent years and years and years studying. And, you know, these confessions have really stood the test of time where, I mean, the three forms of unity, I don't remember the date. It's in the 15, like Heidelberg, when does Heidelberg come out? Yeah, let me look that up while you're talking. Okay. So Heidel, Heidelberg was first, and then Westminster's um, 1646, and then London so, Baptist yeah. 1689. And so, I mean, these these confessions have been around for hundreds of years and we're still holding to them. Like they're still, um, they're still helpful today, which I think is important. It's not something someone wrote in the nineties that we think sounds really good. Um, churches have been using these for a very long time. Right. And they have actually made a couple changes through the years and I, it's 1563 on the Heidelberg catechism. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was. Um, and there have been a couple changes through the years. I This is going to be a very long resource sheet. And for those of you who want to know more, I strongly encourage, you know, our goal here at Theology Gals is to encourage you ladies in theological study and understanding. So I will put quite a few links in there about the history. We decided not to talk a lot about the history. So we wanted to talk, focus on the why, because that seems to be the greatest question that we get. Um, but yeah, there, and there have been, you know, a couple small changes through the years as, as they look through, but you're right, Ashley, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine about when you first became a Christian, had you never heard the idea about the Trinity, would you have, would you have understood that mm-hmm. without someone coming alongside you and saying, Hey, this is what the Trinity is about. Cause they were looking at the whole, the entirety of scripture not just we're just going to take this over here. In fact, if you if you look at any of the catechisms and confessions with the proof text, there's just a boatload of, of proof text in there. You know, uh, one of them. 
you you saying that reminds me of the changes that they've made. We actually spent some time um, at one of my churches. Uh, we've moved since, but we spent some time looking at the changes that the Presbyterian Church in America, the changes we've made compared to what the the British Virgin version of the Westminster um, Confession is. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, that's what I'm saying is, it, you know, it's that not, is. it's not infallible. It's, I think when the, when the Presbyterian church here, we took a little bit different stance on like what government should look like and things like that. Um, than the, what the original writers, you know, intended. Um, but it's very, it's very similar. You see that it, it kind of lines up in the scripture. Um, it's very similar. Yeah, and something I maybe should have started with that I'm going to go ahead and do this right now is maybe name the confessions and who holds to them. Um, The Westminster Standards, which Ashley and I both hold to officially, is the Confession and Catechisms of the Presbyterian Churches. The PCA, which we we need to do like an acronym show, Ashley. Seriously, (laughs) there's so many. Or maybe I'll do like a a cheat sheet. You know, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher and we have tons of acronyms in teaching. So I'm, I'm pretty good at remembering. Okay. Maybe I'll put one of those together, but the, so for the West, the Westminster standards includes the Westminster confession, the Westminster shorter catechism and the Westminster larger catechism. We'll get into a little bit later the purpose of the, of the catechisms, but with the Westminster standards, the catechisms really do parallel the confession. And then um, we have the three forms of unity. There, there ha- I should mention there have been some different confessions throughout church history th- since the Reformation, but I'm going to focus on what are the most common ones used today, especially, you know, in the United States. But you have the, so the Westminster Standards, and the, the other one is the three forms of unity. And the three forms of unity consists of the Canons of Dort, which we talked about in our Calvinist episode, and the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, which Ashley mentioned earlier. Um, I've been part of a URC, so I do hold to them. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I love question one, which I recite to myself often. I encourage you to go look it up. I'll actually put it in a resource sheet. And the question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It's, It's very encouraging, and there's verses to go along with it. But I don't want to neglect to mention the 39 articles, and we don't see that around in our circles so much, but um, I wanted to tell what they are. I actually have a little thing here. Um, the 30... also, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, okay. I was going to say, if you're looking something up, um, we also want to mention the London Baptist. I don't think we mentioned Right, that. and I was going to get to that okay. next. Right. Um, so the 39 articles are the historically defining statements of doctrines and practices of the Church of England with respect to the controversies of the English Reformation. The 39 articles form part of the Book of Common Prayer used by both the Church of England and the Episcopal Church. We do have some Reformed Episcopals in our church, in our group, and Reformed Episcopal Church is actually a denomination that Michael Horton was previously ordained in and I have a couple of friends who previously were ordained in it. It's had some changes and some people have left it. But Ashley, do you want to talk about now the Baptist side of 
you know, the Credo Baptist confessions? Sure. I mean, I wish I could give more history on them. I know that, that that's the the latest of the commonly held um, confessions, the 1689 uh, London Baptist Confession. Uh, so any uh, confessional Reformed Baptist Church will hold to uh, the London Baptist Confession. Are there any other? Well, actually not true because the not church our family tended for a little while. They hold to a version of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism. And um, I believe it's called something like the Baptist Catechism. I have a friend, a couple of friends who hold to it. And it is a Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism, the way that the London Baptist Confession is kind of a Baptist version of the Heidelberg. So, and, and so this particular church that we attended did not hold to the London Baptist Confession, but they held to this version of the Heidelberg Catechism that pretty much it's, I know that at least in this church, and I'm not sure if there's other versions, it was pretty much the same thing, except the Baptist part. I mean, they even said that they said, we hold pretty much to the Heidelberg Catechism, except for the section on baptism. I don't know if that's, if that's common or, you know, sometimes churches are different. Sometimes churches will take, they'll take exception you know, to some, there is a denomination. Um, when I was talking about the, I did not actually talk about who holds three, the three forms of unity earlier. I totally neglected that, but that kind of those in the Dutch reform tradition, the URC, which is United Reformed church. Um, the CRC historically did hold to it. I have a friend who's in an independent Dutch reformed church. They hold to the three forms of unity. I believe the, there's the, I think it's called the Canadian Reformed Church and American Reformed Church. They hold to it. There is the PRCA, the Protestant Reformed Church in America. They hold to both the Westminster Standards and the Heidelberg Catechism. To my knowledge, that's the only major denomination that holds to both. But I didn't want to neglect um, all of that. Yeah, man, we just threw a lot of uh, a lot of acronyms out there. <laughs> so the London Baptist Confession. I, like I know you're saying it, not all Reformed Baptist churches hold to it, but the majority of confessionally Reformed Baptist churches would. I think, yeah, I think that would be accurate. I think that there are some, for the same reason, some don't hold to the Westminster standards. They hold to the three, three forms of unity. I think right. that there are reasons why some Baptists say, hey, we're not London Baptist. We're confessional, but we're not London Baptist confessional. We're Heidelberg minus baptism confessional. Yeah. And I think that there's, there are some, you know, there, there are some random other, not random is probably not the right word, but there are some other confessions and catechisms that I do run across in more independent churches. So this is not an exhaustive list of what reformed, Presbyterian in particular Baptist. You know, I wanted to mention something. This is a complete side note, but for some reason, Ashley, I don't know if you've seen this, but there seems to be on Facebook, this understanding that there's only Reformed Baptist and Presbyterian. Hmm. And if you are a Calvinist and confessional and Reformed and a Pado-Baptist, you are not automatically a Presbyterian. Reformed is another category. Oh, okay. 
United Reformed Church, for instance, various Dutch Reformed denominations are not, they do not label themselves as Presbyterian, but they do. So usually we would say Reformed and Presbyterian in those circles. I just thought I'd mention that because I read it again. There's like a lot of categories, you know, there's, there's not just Presbyterian and Baptist. On the Pado-Baptist, on the Pado-Baptist yeah. side, those who hold to the three forms of unity, generally speaking, are Reformed. Those who hold to the Westminster Standards, generally speaking, are Presbyterians. Okay. There are exceptions to the rule, but that's a pretty good way of of <laughs> saying that. So, so Ashley, do you are we saying that Scripture is isn't enough? That's why we need these confessions and catechisms. No. And in fact, we hold to sola scriptura. We, you know, as reformed Presbyterian, reformed and Presbyterian, right? We're, we're using our terms correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, we would say that we believe scripture is enough. Um, but we would say that the confessions are very helpful. And I'd notice Michael Horton, uh, we mentioned his name again. Um, I've noticed that he even makes the I, I've heard this before, someone saying a confessional is authoritative. And even if, with my background, I go, ooh, don't say authoritative. But he's not saying it's the authority. He's saying it has some authority over um, how we interpret Scripture, right? Am I correct in, in what what yeah. he's saying there? He's not. He's definitely not placing it, um, placing a, a, a confession above Scripture. He's... He's placing it above our own, you know, what, what we might, you know, I think, I think some people think sola scriptura is, is me sitting alone in a room reading the Bible. Um, and he's saying, no, that's not, that's not sola scriptura. I, I have a quote from Todd Pruitt from the, the regular reform guys podcast. Exactly what you're talking about, Ashley. It's because I just listened to it. So, so sorry, see, regular reform guys, if I, just, but they say only scripture carries with it real authority of God. Confessions are authoritative. A subsidiary of, I did not say that right. A subsidiary <laughs> authority. I'm, I'm looking at it really far away here. Um, reading a Bible individualistically tends towards error. I, and that actually, see, in if you look at the history of kind of what happened as in American evangelicalism with the divorce from the confessions is what happened was all of a sudden an emphasis on experience, but you don't have to look very far to look around in American evangelicalism today and see the result of that. Because when the emphasis is experience at the expense of true biblical doctrine then people just start believing what they want. Um, Somebody left our group and told me she didn't like our theology because God was leading her in a different way. So is there there a for sure standard of truth and authority or is there not? Hmm. And so if you read about the history of the confessions, especially in the United States, you will run into a lot of stuff regarding when you when you read about people separating themselves from the confessions and you look at the great awakening when it became more about revival and experiencing god and your faith being more of a personal thing than 
in community with the church. It right. it all comes with this divorce from the confessions. Right. And when, when we read when we read our Bible, we aren't reading it. We shouldn't read it as if um, it hasn't been read for hundreds and hundreds of years by um, the whole community of the church. I mean, we're we're not we're not on an island uh, with our right. Bible. And and these aren't new either. You know, I think probably a lot of our listeners at some point have heard of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. That was a way. I mean, that was a very brief statement of faith, but they were confessing, especially within those, you have very foundational aspects of the Christian faith. And those, I mean, I think that the Apostles' Creed, I think, was from the second century. And we are there. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, I think some people call ecumenical creeds. And you will even sometimes hear them in Catholic churches, but they are confessing foundational aspects of the Christian faith. And also it is an attempt. The other thing the confessions do is it's an attempt to protect us from error. Right. Yeah. So now that I've kind of, you know, accepted it as, Oh, this is actually like really helpful. You know, the first thing I'll do after asking my pastor, of course, <laughs> my husband is, um, I'll go, you know, look up Westminster chapter 23, you know, like I, I'll check what, what are the divines? Um, we might need to explain why they're called divines. Um, what are the divines? What did they think about this topic? Um, I know our church went through, gosh, I'm trying to remember if it's Westminster chapter 23 or 27. That's about government and how like, how we as Christians should think about um, civil government and how the church relates to that and what scripture has to say about that. And I was like, wow, this is like really interesting. You know, Um, we spent a lot of time going through that during the election season, which, you know, that was fun. Um, But it was, you know, it's, it's very helpful um, to have a document like that. That's, that's backed up and you can trust and you can kind of compare it. Because it gives you proof text. It's like, you know, like eight proof right. texts for every statement. And you can look, oh, okay, so that's where they're getting that scripture. And so. Yeah, I think you hit on a really good thing is that is the trust aspect. Um, when, one thing that has happened, unfortunately, is with, we'll talk about the Young Restless Reform Movement next week, but kind of a new reformed movement. And there's, there is some anti-confessionalism within it or just non-confessionalism. And another article, which I'm going to put in our research sheet, because it was so good, was from the Creed and Chaos blog. You guys have a lot of and, uh, reading to do is what Colleen is saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because I, don't, I actually don't want you taking our word for it. I want you going out. I want you looking at some of these articles, weighing what they say. I want you looking to scripture. So, but this one, uh, this, this article is so excellent, but said one good, maybe one way to avoid non-confessionalism among the contemporary formed is to cultivate an appreciation for the theology of the confessions as they relate to the historic reformed understanding of scripture to what we actually believe. And, you know, what's interesting is, 
So we've seen non-confessional people who will pro- proclaim the five points of Calvinism. They will proclaim the five solas. And so think to yourself for a minute, where did those come from? You didn't, you didn't just start proclaiming them. This was not an individualistic thing. These did come from somewhere. And I think that one of the things that there is a misunderstanding about is since the Catholic church, it puts, puts history and tradition on a pedestal. I think there's a temptation to disregard it entirely, but we can learn from history. We can learn from tradition. We can learn from those who have gone before us. There's Michael Horton quotes, Robert Godfrey. Sometimes he says that Robert Godfrey says that we keep reinventing the wheel, but it's never round. And I even heard Martin Lloyd-Jones, I don't have it in front of me, I'll have to find that and link it too, where he said, you think that you're the first person who came up with this? There is nothing new. Anything with, even within Christianity, it has been debated before. And these things have been debated, they have been decided, and we can learn from those who came before us and argued these things. Right. And and also that doesn't mean um you agree with everything in the confession. Um right. uh, I know many Presbyterians, I know in our denomination who would take exception at certain points in the Westminster Confession. Um, but they would say overall, you know, the I mm-hmm. you know, ninety eight percent of the confession or whatever I, I agree with. But there's just I think their wording is a little too strong with this thing or that thing. And you might know what I'm talking about, Colleen. Um, And so, you know, it doesn't mean it's not like scripture where, you know, scripture, we take it as everything in scripture is it's infallible. It's true. It's inspired, but we do see it as authoritative in a sense and, and helpful. So should we talk about the catechisms? Why, why we yes. like catechisms? Yes, we have, I was actually just thinking that. Um, I wanted, I, I did want to say, because you brought up something I hadn't even thought about, but our Reformed or Presbyterian denominations do allow certain, um, you know, where you can say, hey, I take exception to that. When we became, we became members of a PCA as credo Baptists, and they allowed us to take exception to the catechism and confessions on baptism. And then we became members of an OPC before we were pedo Baptist and were, and took exception again. So they don't, when you become a member of a reformed and Presbyterian church, they don't say sign on the dotted line and you better accept every single tiny thing. I know in the Reformed churches we've become members of, they have asked us if we take exception to the catechism on anything. If we took exception to the catechism on the Trinity, that would be problematic. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. we take exception the to the confession on, recre- you know, or the, the confession on recreation on the Lord's Day, um, they will allow us to still become members and not put us under church discipline. <laughs> so there are, you know, I think in the wisdom of those in leadership in our church. So, Ashley, I'll go ahead and let you talk about kind of the catechism and what it is. So, 
Well, the thing is, is like, even before I heard about the catechisms, um, we'd use them in our church. Our church didn't hold to them, but I think almost everyone's heard um, what is the chief end of man um, question, answer to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, So I think a lot of, I think a lot of churches borrow from the conf- uh, the catechism because they see it they see it as a helpful you know way for for Christians to learn um, I guess basic not basic though I mean real theological concepts uh, but I think I mean you you like they're helpful to use with your children right you know when and, you're and for children but they, they are for teaching. Right. We we read from the the shorter catechism every Sunday. I don't know if your church does that, but like we'll work our way through the Ten Commandments portion of the shorter catechism, and my pastor will ask the question, you know, like what is the ninth commandment, and we'll respond. And I can see someone not from the the background and not used to that find that a little weird, but it's the pastor, you know, training us and teaching us in what is in scripture. Um, so it's not, yeah, like you said, it's not just for kids. <laughs> right. And, and that is, that actually is exactly, exactly what the catechism is used for. It is, um, it is to train and teach us. And, you know, what, once again, I know the first Presbyterian church that I was part of brand new reformed was RPCNA, which is reform Presbyterian and they gave me one of my first weeks one of a small binder not the huge one huge ones but a little bit smaller and it had the confession and both catechisms in it and that that was that was really neat and they used it too i know our path we've had pastors preach through it um you know at sunday evening service and those yeah. sorts of things as far as teaching and as we we went through a when we were part of a URC church plant, we went through a two year Heidelberg Catechism. Fell in love with the Heidelberg Catechism, love it so much. And in fact, you know what i I teased you guys a little bit before, but I actually do. Ashley said the first question of the of the Westminster Catechism. I want to say the first one of the Heidelberg. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He has preserved, He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's much longer than the Westminster Cat. Well, I should say it's much longer question and answer because I think the Westminster standards overall are longer. Yeah. Um, but as a mom, we started with, and if you're a mom and you have little kids, you, there is a children's catechism that is based on the shorter catechism, and there's one for Baptists too with slight changes. 
And I have the comfort of knowing that my children have been taught doctrine. By the time my children were a year and a half, they could answer the first three questions of the mm -hmm. children's catechism, which was, who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make? Although they would say all things because they were 18 months old. Why did God make you in all things? And they would usually say something like glory, but the answer is for his glory. But it even gets into how many persons in the Godhead. My children know that. My children know how many persons there are in the Godhead. And once they finished the children's catechism, they moved on to the shorter catechism, which is some of the answers are almost identical. So I think there's like... 140 questions in the children's catechism. Some of them are pretty long. Too. It's very, very close. And this is this is one of the ways that as a mom, or I should say my husband, we did it in family worship where we trained our children in doctrine. They learned the Lord's Prayer through the catechism. They learned what each of the Ten Commandments mean through the catechism. They learned about the persons of the Godhead. They learned... Um, it's just so much. They they learned about the Sabbath. They learned about the church. They it's it's such an amazing tool for teaching children doctrine. I mean, my I think about my oldest son, six and a half years old. He had that whole thing memorized, and and he knows that he's twenty years old now, but he remembers those things. He was taught doctrine at a young age, and I don't think we do that not in the churches I grew up in. Right. Wow, that's that's really cool. Um, I don't even think I've I've gone through the children's one. Is it separate from? Is, you know, I'm not talking about the new city. Or that that's totally separate. You know, that's I'm cool. not. Um, I don't have children yet, so yeah. <laughs> I haven't gone through the children's one. But that's I'm not sure cool. where it came from. But it act so in in the OPC we use Great Commission for the Sunday school curriculum. And it has the cat. It has the children. It uses the children catechism, children's catechism, right in there. I think they use Great Commission in the PCA and OPC, but it actually does follow the children's catechism. I taught the three to five year olds for five years, and it it does have I think three questions a week, and then what we would do is we had a little. I think it actually came in our Sunday school curriculum where we kind of kept track of where each of the children were in their learning of the catechism. They were learning it at home and then reciting it at church. And our church had a catechism time between church and Sunday school where the kids could recite catechism or if they were shy, they could do it privately also. But I'm not sure. I know, I know it goes along with, the Shorter Catechism, I know some of the stuff is very similar, especially as you get further on to the questions about the Lord's Prayer, about the Ten Commandments and that sort of thing. The earlier questions are really easy. So you can do them with very, very, as soon as a kid can talk, you know, as soon as our children could talk, we were teaching them who made you God. I mean, that was like their fifth word usually. Um, what's interesting about the, the catechism the Westminster Catechism too is, so I'm part of a church plant. And so, you know, on Sunday nights, we just started with question one, you know, our first, first Sunday night that we had last year. And we work through three questions 
uh, a week, you know, every Sunday night. And we look at all the proof texts and we talk about it. And it's amazing that it takes us an hour to really dig in and talk about um, the questions. And part of it, I mean, my pastor's amazing and he's really good at asking questions. But we look at each proof text and we read it and we talk about, okay, where where are they seeing this in this text? And we discuss and it, it's I mean, it's the most in-depth training I've ever had on, you know, any kind of doctrine. Um, you leave it feeling you like, man, that was only three questions, but we got so into scripture and we like really dug our teeth into what they were asking that we learned a ton. Um, so it's been a huge blessing for me who's, you know, somewhat new to, to Reformed theology. I feel like I just learned a ton from it. Yeah, it it really is based based on scripture. And there's there's so much more. There's there's so much we could say. I yeah. have I'm going to have a, I have some r- really great resources with this resource sheet because I found so many great resources. Um cuz there is very good arguments for why the confession and catechism are important both for our own understanding of doctrine for being able to trust that our church is holding to certain doctrine and also for the training up of our own children in doctrine. And I, you know, I'd like to add one thing too, is if you're looking for a church and you don't really know about the denomination or you don't, you just see a church name, a website, you don't know what it is, but then you look and it says, oh, and we hold to the Westminster's, you know, that's like immensely comforting because you already know, oh, they hold to the Westminster. I know exactly where this church stands um, on theological issues. So it makes looking for a church, you know, a whole lot easier. And, you know, it's not like, oh, I need to go try 10 churches in the new town I just moved to because, um, you don't really have to do that. That's that's such a good point. I actually read someone say something very similar to that recently, Ashley, and that is such a wonderful point point that you made. We may have to like have someone on to talk about this in more yeah. more in in depth. Well, I feel like we quote so many people that it's almost like it's almost like yeah. we have people on. But should we should we wrap up and do our questions? Yeah. Well, somebody. Somebody wrote me a note, or I think I don't know if it was commented somewhere and said, so on the Calvinism episode, I took a sip of water every time you mentioned Michael Horton, <laughs> and I was, like, done with the glass by the end of the episode. I think, I, was, they said, I think they said, I took a sip of water every time you guys mentioned Michael Horton, and by the end of the episode, I was no longer thirsty. <laughs> right, that's, that's, I was like, that's, oh, well, if we're, if we're quoting Michael Horton too much, that's not a bad thing. He's smart guy. I, I thought I was going to quote... DG Hart and R. Scott Clark even more than I did, but I will I will say you restrained yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah, I will say yeah, my allegiances are obvious. But I, I will say if you want to learn more about this, those are the two guys right there. I mean, I if you're if you're listening to us now and you're thinking, I just really want to understand more, then go and order Recovering the Reformed Confessions by R. Scott Clark and order Recovering the Lost Soul of American Protestantism. Or I, I said recovering. I messed the two. Anyways, The Lost Soul of American Protestantism 
by DG Hart. And I'm going to include some. If you're somebody who is not a reader, and that's okay, I have a lot of good audios that discuss this. And, or if you're someone who just, you know, you're, you're a busy mom of toddlers, I've got a lot of good articles too. And um, I will give all of our contact information at the end of the episode. I know that, and we're, we're maybe going to have to have someone on to talk about this in more detail. Yeah. But Ashley, I think everyone's just waiting still from episode two's question. That's why they've even listened so, this far. I want to be clear that the episode was, or not the episode, the question was, what What do you think is the greatest band of all time? So I wasn't saying, oh, was, what, do I, I wasn't saying what is your favorite band? Although those mine? two could be the same thing. I was saying, in your opinion, what do you think the greatest band of all time? Of course, I only think there's one answer to this question, but I, I, I would like to hear what, or do you want me to go first? Uh, well, let, let's just build up the suspense because okay. everyone wants to know yours. Nobody <laughs> seems very well, interested in mine. Everyone's well aware that that my interest, my answer is not going to be very interesting. I'm not even sure how I could answer that question. I am so odd musically because, you know, I I majored in music. I play the piano and flute and sang and and that sort of thing. So. I probably have a different playlist than anyone else. And I'm not sure I can even say a band for me. It's all about the right composers. Well, the right. Um, so for, so yeah, I, I'm not sure I can, I, I don't even know. Uh, you're going to have to answer Ashley. I don't even okay. know. Maybe you'll turn me on to something. You sound just really refined in your musical taste. So <laughs> that might be it. My answer is, I think objectively, Led Zeppelin is the greatest band of all time. Oh, I think somebody got that on the... Yeah, someone, I think I it think. was Ian Keeley that guessed that. Okay. And I I just don't know how someone could make a case. Someone guessed Pink Floyd, which I thought, you know, that's a pretty good guess. Pink Floyd's a pretty good guess. But, I mean, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, I mean, you can't beat Jimmy Page. I mean, he's just an incredible guitarist. And Robert Plant, I saw him like three years ago. He's like 62. And he was rocking it on stage. Like, he was still Robert Plant. Um, so in my opinion, Led Zeppelin is the greatest band of all time. Okay, we're probably going to get all kinds of feedback about how, you know, you're either right or wrong. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure people will tell me that's not a very Christian band, too, which I know. Believe me, I know. <laughs> I'm right. Well, I, I always think back to something I heard from Michael Horton years ago. He said, when you become a Christian, you throw out your secular music. When you become reformed, you throw out your Christian music. <laughs> um, yeah, yep. ladies, a lot of the Christian music out there is not good. It is not theologically sound. I feel like there's been a turn in the last year where I'm starting to see some good stuff. Right. Well, I say a lot. I did not say uh, yeah. that. But, yeah, there are some good bands out there. But. Okay. So, Ashley, what are they? What are some good Christian bands? Because um, I get this question, and I have no idea how to answer. I've really been digging Citizens and Saints lately. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're They're really great, and their music's not – 
Like anything that sounds like it could be on Christian radio, I won't listen to. I don't care how theologically sound it is. Like if it's overly repetitive or it has like one chord, the whole song, like I'm just like. Three you know. chords usually is, yeah. It's three. Oh, is that like the standard? Okay. Yeah, three, three chords. But yeah, Citizens and Saints is really good. Um, I haven't listened to King's Kaleidoscope a ton, but I've heard people recommend them. I really like page 116 if you're looking for like modern hymns. Um, it's page like like the page of a book and then CXVI. She's she's really great. Um, I also really like Ascend the Hill. They've done a lot of modern hymns. I, I like when people take hymns and make them more modern. I think that's really cool. Citizens and Saints is more um, just like a you know band. They don't. I I think they have a couple hymns, but. Um, yeah, even Sufjan Stevens. I know, I know Abby will appreciate us mentioning that. Sufjan, who is kind of a weird guy. I don't know if you know who he is, but I'm a big Sufjan fan. Um, but he has some hymns as well. Yeah. Abby is one of our dear sisters who's an admin in our group. Yeah. She, She keeps order very well. So we appreciate her. Yeah. See, This is where the generational thing between Ashley and I is going to become more obvious. Well, I just mentioned Led Zeppelin, so I don't think. Yeah, but But when it comes to Christian music, I I don't like a lot of the new arrangements of hymns at all. I have, I probably have a very, I think I have a very large collection of hymns. And in fact, I have. I have two wonderful playlists on Spotify of hymns. And if you write to us at theologygals at gmail.com, I may even send it to you. I will, actually. <laughs> I, I, I have these moments where I think I'm only 43, but I think I'm getting older because I really do like the old stuff. Hmm. Um, you know, I like acapella hymns. I, I like, I like, King's College, Cambridge singers, the choir, and I, I do like classical choral music. My, well, there's two songs, but one of my very favorite songs, and it's a lesser known piece from Handel, but when I hear it, I'm pretty sure we will be singing it in heaven, and <laughs> it's it's called Holy Art Thou. It, I... It, I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of music. There's a couple other pieces of music too, I think are on that same level, but that is like Messiah is wonderful. It's great, but Holy Art Thou, it's a little bit lesser known piece that, and it's, it's a, difficult to actually find it that difficult to find it. I have a couple of recordings of it, but it's, there's almost, I don't think there's anything on Spotify or many good recordings of it on YouTube, but if you can ever find that, I find that to be one of the most beautiful pieces of music. So yeah, I think it's it's a taste thing, but I think more of our audience is excited about the things that you just mentioned. Well, you know, my, I've got the millennial vote, I think. That's right. Yeah. And I'm all for that. Millennials. Yes. My, my kids like to make fun of my music. That, that you, is the popular thing. Gosh, are you, your kids, no, your kids are too young to be millennials, right? 
Maybe your oldest well, is. Well, I think my oldest is a millennial. Although he he's he's at the he very has, youngest. Right. He told me that millennials don't exist. And is um, that that's the rumor? I guess he said. I showed him some funny thing about millennials, and he got upset and said, "Millennials don't exist." Yeah, you know, I've had this conversation because I'm a millennial, so you guys mm-hmm. can probably guess my age, but. I've had this conversation with people and they're like, I am not a millennial. Like I do not, you know, cause there's so much in the news about millennials and I'm like, look, like I'm not so happy about it either, but you are <laughs> like, right. if you were born in this range of years, you're Gen Y, you're a millennial, you know? So I like, I like having that conversation. Right. So we got to, now that you know our answer for that, we have to do a question for, we have to do our question that we'll answer in episode four. So Ashley, I'm going to let you have, Sure. You have the mic. So I was thinking about this today because I've been sick. Um, what What's the best movie to watch when you're either sick or you're just having a bad day and you want to watch a movie that is easy to watch, make you feel a little bit better? So what, what what's your favorite? That's what I want to hear answered next episode. You know, again, showing my age. I and well, not not. Well, we're we gonna answer this one. Or next age, one. Who would who would disagree? But I no. This is my husband and I are not movie people. <laughs> we just <laughs> aren't. Um, Besides, I mean, the Brent and the boys went and saw Star Wars in the theater. I cannot remember the last time I was in the theater. I was trying to remember. I it uh, probably at least seven years, and we just do not even watch very many movies. So for me, this is, I, I go to my go-to movies, which is usually something I, and I know it makes zero sense, but watching the old Luther movie, the old black and white movie, for some reason reminds me of God's sovereignty and grace. And you are so Christian, look at you. you watch Luther. <laughs> I'm so reformed. This is, this wow. is the reformed answer. And it's, it's more reformed That's if you say the old black and white one. Wow, you're so, like, okay. If you're, so you're so reformed, is what I meant. I'm so reformed, yeah, yeah. And then, um, I'm trying. To, I I'm not even sure what. I'm not even somebody. I'm somebody who rarely watches movies over again, and so I, I'm going to think about this, Ashley. Maybe there's something okay. I'm neglect. I'm going to ask my husband. Maybe I'm thinking I'm neglecting. We'll we'll answer it next episode. We'll okay. Well, maybe I need ideas, just like the bands. I need ideas, so next time I need movies, I get yeah. to go to listener ideas for what what is actually the what's the best. Gene, movie? Who, I I know I think I know exactly what Gene, who um answered your your band question right. I know what she's. I'm pretty sure I know what she's going to say because yeah. when she visited me, she brought a specific movie and said, "Oh, I just love." watching it and so I think it's it's her feel-good movie so she accidentally left at my house I'm gonna watch it and see if it it fits in this category well, there you go I've, I saw it years ago but I'm gonna watch it again to see if it it fits so I'll, I'll be expecting a non-reformed answer next episode <laughs> you can't say Luther that's right okay all right okay so well we wrap up um, before we before we go, if you if you're a woman, this is this show is for women, but I know some men listen with their wives or to make sure we're not 
spouting heresy. So, but if you're a woman and you're not in our Facebook group and you're welcome to join, it's called Theology Gals, Ladies Theology Discussion and Encouragement. All you have to do is request. Uh, we have a Facebook page. Please like us there so you can follow us. We post all kinds of great stuff or try to. And you can keep up with our podcast with different blog articles. I did have a blog, my first blog article recently. When Theology is for women too. It's on the Bible Thumping Wingnut.com webpage. And we have a Twitter, Theology Gals, Instagram, Theology Gals. It should be, it's pretty much Theology Gals across the board. You should be able to find us everywhere. And you can email us at theologygals at gmail.com. We do release a resource sheet for each episode with all the things that we mentioned. If you're in our group, we always post it in there. Otherwise, if you're not, email us. We will send it to you. Um, Did I forget anything else, Ashley? Nope, you got it. Thanks for joining us. We're so glad that you joined us, and we appreciate all of the feedback and just that you've taken the time to spend a little, an hour or so with us. Okay, thank you, and see you next week on Tuesday. 